0: first Saturday in every April, uh, my father takes me to Boone, North Carolina, and crushes me in trout fishing. It happens every year, unfortunately. Uh, I'm 34 years old, and I've beat him three times, so I'm making a comeback. You know, he's like in his late 60s. Hopefully, the less he can walk, the better I'll beat him (laughs) at uh, trout fishing. But uh, I can remember uh, fishing with him uh, in, I don't know, like fifth grade, and I would toss in in the New River in Boone, North Carolina, and I would get hung on something, and because I was impatient, I would jerk my rod, and it would break, and there would be this just jumbled, tangled mess, right? And I can remember my dad, he was uh, a more righteous man than I am. He would uh, come, sit on the bank, give me his fishing pole, um, and I would fish with his and still not out but him. Um, and he would sit there, and he would untangle my fishing uh, pole in the, in the line so that I could fish again. And that illustration came to mind because of the discipline and patience that it took my dad to kind of unweave some of that stuff. Some of the things we're talking about in this passage take unweaving, right, are kind of tangled, right? Paul covers conflict resolution, yay, around Christmas, right? It's like, (laughs) we don't want to talk about that, but it it exists, right? Conflict, uh, anxiety, or anxious thoughts is in this passage, and also uh, what actually even consumes our thoughts. I think it's particularly applicable to the holiday season. And these three things that Paul exhorts us to today, um, to overcome them, they require patience and discipline, like my dad sitting on the bank untangling uh, a fishing line. But if you do it, if you have the discipline and the patience to apply the principles that Paul talks about, you will experience the gospel, uh, particularly in your life, but even more so uh, in the Christmas season. And that's what we want to do, or what I want to exhort you to this morning, is I want you to experience the benefits of the gospel, and there's at least three in this passage. The first is this. Jesus wants us to pursue the unity that he provides for his church. Secondly, he wants us to allow the joy he provides to bring peace, particularly during the Christmas season. And thirdly, he wants us to uh, uh, fill our thoughts uh, with the praiseworthy king. So number one this morning, pursue the unity that Jesus provides. Look back at your Bibles in verses uh, one to three. Paul says, uh, so then, look at this language. My dearly loved and longed for brothers and sisters, my joy and crown." In this manner, stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. I urge Iodia and I urge Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you, true partner, to help these women who've continued uh, for the gospel at my side, along with Clement and the rest of the co-workers whose names are written in the book of life. So Paul does this really cool thing in the first three verses here where he gives a case-specific example of what he commanded the Philippians to do in Philippians chapter 1 verse 27. If you look back there in your Bibles, even if you flip one uh, page back, you'll see that he says in verse uh, 27 of chapter 1, he says, stand firm in one spirit in one accord and contend for the faith of the gospel together. And then he gives us a case, a specific example of how that's uh, happening or or attempting to happen in the church of Philippi, where in um, chapter 4, verse 1, he says, stand firm, similar language, right? He says, agree in the Lord, similar language to um, in one spirit. And then lastly, he says, these two women have contended uh, for the gospel with me. And often I tell you that I want God's word to change your Monday mornings, right? Every time we get to application, I say, I want your Monday mornings to be different, right? We, and that's because we wanna apply God's word to our lives. We wanna gather, hear the word to all, and then apply it. And the same is true for Paul and the church that he is shepherding. right? Maybe there's a chance that Yodia and Syntyche heard what he said in chapter one, verse 27, right? Because this letter would have been uh, read publicly, and they didn't think that it had applied to them. Well, Paul removed all doubt, didn't he? because he names them in this text. And we don't know why Yodia and Syntyche were fighting, but it's safe to say that it was not a weighty theological disagreement or anything else that would have been a reason to separate fellowship. If so, as we've learned in other letters, Paul would have sorted that out really, really clearly. He does that really clearly in the book of Galatians, if you want to read it for homework. Uh, Further, um, we can also safely assume that um, that Paul is not advocating for reconciliation in the midst of an abusive conflict, Right, this is most likely just a general relational difference, possibly about how to express gospel ministry within the local church. You know, I read uh, several commentaries this week to try to figure out exactly what the conflict was, and uh, one commentator speculated that it could have been about whether or not to send financial aid to Paul. So we don't know why they're fighting, but we do know some characteristics of these women. Uh, first, um, they're followers of Jesus. We know this for sure. There's at least four indicators in these short three passages that they're followers of Jesus. You know, sometimes one of my frustrations with with uh, preaching is it's monologue and not dialogue, because I would love for y'all to look at them and like yell them out. I don't know if we can do that, but but look at verses one, two, and three. What are some indicators that they are followers of Jesus? Well, in the Lord. That's the only Paul Paul never uses in the Lord unless he's talking about believers. Uh, contended for the the gospel together, right? So they're out there trying to make the gospel known. They're co-workers, and the most important one probably is in verse three. Look at the very end of verse three. He says, your names are written in the book of life. So in addition, uh, we can tell from uh, this passage that these women are great friends of Paul as well, and he deeply loves them, right? You can see this in verse one, where his language goes in earlier in the, the book of Philippians from brothers and sisters in chapter one to now in chapter four, he says, my brothers and sisters. And he uses phrases like dearly loved and dear friends and my joy and my crown. He does this all in one verse. And further, there's a clear indication that Paul is refusing to take sides in their disagreement. The Bible's amazing. I wonder if you caught this. Look at what Paul does. He never wastes words, ever. And look at what he says in verse two. He says, I urge Iodia and I urge Syntyche. He doesn't say I urge y'all. He doesn't say I urge both of you. He, He singles out both of them. I urge Iodia and I urge Syntyche. And what he's doing here is he is urging them both individually. Paul is saying that um, it is not on one person to be the initiator of reconciliation in their relationship. And further, I think it indicates that Paul's unwilling to take sides, right? Paul commands these women uh, on an individual level to apply what he has covered earlier in his letter, which is uh, summarized here as to agree in the Lord. And lastly, Paul calls a member of the church to be a part of the reconciliation process. Did you catch that? Uh, Look back in verse three where he says, uh, yes, I also ask you, true partner, help these women. So Paul speaks directly to someone he calls true partner, or your translation might say true companion. And I read seven commentaries last week trying to figure out who this joker is. And uh, I'm not convinced um, with any sort of certainty, but I'm persuaded that it was Epaphroditus because he would be the individual who's taking the letter from Paul in Rome uh, back to the church at Philippi. But he commands someone to get involved. And Paul says, I want you to ensure that these two followers of Jesus deal with their relational strife, and reconcile for the greater good of the church at Philippi. And from these short verses, there's so much we can learn for life today within our local church, Kings Stable Church, in 2023. You know, most uh, generally, I would say that conflict is a reality, even within a healthy church. Did y'all hear me? Conflict is a reality, even within a healthy church, right? We can have disagreements without sinning. It may be more of a sign of a lack of unhealth or a lack of health, rather, if conflict conflict were completely absent. Because uh, that probably means that uh, there's unaddressed conflict. (laughs) A couple examples of this in the early church. This is how we know that we can have disagreements without sinning. Uh, In Acts chapter uh, 15, Barnabas and Paul have a disagreement about what to uh, to do with Mark in terms of ministry. In uh, Galatians 2, uh, Paul uh, rebukes Peter publicly because he was separating Jews and Gentiles. And he says that's not in line with the gospel. And maybe most famously, and again, this is how we can know we can do this without sinning, in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus rebukes Peter right, for not understanding why Jesus came uh, and that Jesus, and for Peter wanting Jesus not to go to a, uh, uh, to a death. Right? And, and the presence of conflict, again, isn't necessarily a sign of an unth- unhealthy church. I'll say this. The consistent presence of unresolved conflict is a sign of an unhealthy church. So I will say this. I'll repeat that. The consistent presence of unresolved conflict inside a local church is a sign of an unhealthy body. Right? And God's church is not called to be unique in that we never have conflict. We're called to be unique in the way that we deal with it. Right? We give one another grace. We're slow, we, uh, we believe the best. Uh, we're slow to assume uh, anything. So to apply this, you know, what would it look like to be um, you know, people who are willing to deal with reconciliation or mediate reconciliation? Well, the first thing I would say is that we should be imitators and initiators uh, of, of Paul here. Uh, imitators of Paul here by initiating reconciliation in our own life. You know, I think of uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 23 to 24. Jesus says this. Uh, if you're offering your gift at the altar, so if you're at a worship service like this, and there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in the front of the altar and first go and reconcil- be reconciled with your brother or sister and then come and offer your gift. You don't know why it's so easy just to like delay hard conversations, isn't it? Like, like you have a little strife with someone or something comes off the wrong way and we put it off, we put it off, we put it off. But Jesus wants you to take initiative, right? Even, before, even if you're in the middle of a worship service, right? He's like, get out of there, go reconcile, uh, and, and come back. You know, maybe some of us in the room have an interpersonal conflict that the Holy Spirit, through the power of God's word, is bringing to mind right now. Maybe God is calling you to take the initiative to reconcile with your brother or sister in Christ today. And when you do this, the most interesting thing is you image the gospel, right? You image the gospel to them, to yourself, to the world, because why are you reconciled to God? Because Jesus took the initiative, right? Jesus took the initiative for us. Uh, In uh, 1 John 4, uh, God's word says that we love because he first loved us, right? Jesus was an initiative taker in order for us to be reconciled to the Father. Therefore, if we wanna image what he's like to the world, we'll be an initiative taker as well. Secondly, I'd uh, be an initiator and protector of relational conflict within our church. And I would say this primarily through the protection uh, in terms of gossip, right? This could be as small as someone sharing gossip with you and instead of joining in on their gossip, You, with not an ounce of superiority, gently and calmly, and with a loving heart, say, I think Jesus would want you to talk to that person about that. You know, uh, I've been in church ministry of some form for 15 years, and I'll say that. If you want to ruin and be a part of being a catalyst for ruining intimacy within a local church or a local body, just let gossip fly. Let it go, because it it ruins relationships. It, it creates a lack of trust among people, and it completely destroys any form of intimacy. And Paul encourages people, again, he says, help these women. If you look in verse three, we're called to help people in the midst of this, in the midst of conflict as well, or resolve conflict, because we love them. We love them, right? You're not, um, you're not meddling in anybody's affairs if you're helping two believers reconcile differences, Right, sometimes we can it well, it's none of my business. Well, Paul in this passage says, if it's people that you know and trust, it is a part of your business to help them uh, reconcile. You know, some of us in the room uh, are Syntyche, some of us in the room are Iodia, but some of us don't have any conflict that we're at least aware of. And you may feel like this passage doesn't apply to you. But I encourage you, in Philippians chapter 4, there are uh, at least three parties. Iodia has an issue, Syntyche has an issue, and then there's Paul, who's calling them both uh, to reconcile. One of the ways we can apply this passage is simply by imitating Paul by being a peacemaker. Now, words, words are important, right? I'm not saying peacekeeper. There are peacekeepers in life, and that's not good, in my opinion. But peacemakers are really biblical and healthy, and Paul wants us to be a peacemaker. So super practically speaking, how do you do this? I think Philippians 3, uh, one to, uh, Philippians 4, 1-3 to 3 is a great model. Look back here, Bibles. What is, how does Paul start? You know, I know this is cliché. It's almost like a, uh, what do they call it, a compliment sandwich or something. But Paul does this, right, in uh, verse 1. Look at the language. Dude, I love you. That's what he says in verse 1. I love y'all. My dearly loved friends, my joy in my crown. Like, they might be blushing with how he's talking to them. But then in verse 2, what does he say? But y'all need to get your act together. You need to agree. I urge you both. Re- reconcile, agree in the Lord. And then verse 3, what does he remind them of? The gospel. The gospel. He says, remember, your names are written in the book of life. So people in the room, maybe, I don't know, I don't, I'm not aware of any, glory be to God, but maybe you have some form of conflict. I love y'all. Y'all need to agree and remember what you have in common. You're both followers of Jesus. And the last thing I would say is this, be willing to receive correction. Be willing to receive correction. This is one of the biggest issues, I think, in my own heart and in this cultural moment. Right? Allow a Paul to speak into your life. Allow a Paul to speak into your life, especially if they've earned the right to do so. I can remember being in college, and uh, I had a buddy who'd done life with me for, I don't know, four years. We'd live together. You know, we'd go to Fountain Dining Hall together, you know, go to the gym together, go to steak. I mean, we're constantly uh, in fellowship with one another. And he had earned the right to speak into my life. And um, I can remember I had 800 songs, this is going to date me a little bit, uh, that were illegally downloaded from Napster. Now, some of the college students in the room, y'all don't even know what Napster is because of Apple Music and stuff. But I had all this like, music that I'd stolen. And he rebuked me on this, and I, I was not willing to receive direction. I was ticked off. I'm like, who are you to say? And I, I got on Google and I looked for like three days for a moral loophole that allowed me to take this music and I couldn't find it. So I arrived at the end that this dude was right. And uh, as the distance from that has traveled, right? I'm like, he loved me enough to actually rebuke me. I wish my heart would have been more receptive uh, to correction. And also, I'll tell you this too. After, after that, he, he bought me a $15 iTunes gift card, right? And I slowly started climbing back 99 cents. Now, y'all don't know that about Apple Music, but, but it's like they're, they're, his, his rebuke was kind, but then he also provided for the issue. I mean, but be willing. Like, we got to have hearts that are willing uh, to receive uh, correction. Number one, pursue the unity that Jesus provides for his church. Secondly, Allow the joy that Jesus provides to bring peace. Look back at your Bibles again. Uh, we're going to split this one up a little bit, but we'll start in verses four and five. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again. Rejoice. Let your gracious, graciousness be known <clears throat> to everyone. The Lord is near. Right? Paul begins in verse four by reminding the Philippians to rejoice, which is a huge theme throughout the entire letter of the Philippians. So much so that I feared, even writing in this section of my sermon, that I was going to be repetitive. Right. In that, we've talked about Rejoicing multiple times throughout this sermon series, but Paul isn't fearful of that at all, is he? Right? He repeats it twice. He says, Rejoice. I'll say it again, Rejoice. You know, one of my favorite uh, preachers is a guy named Martin Lloyd Jones. He's been dead for a long time, but uh, he said when he got to Philippians 4, verse 4, that he preached two sermons on just that verse. He said, If Paul did it, I'm going to do it. Right? So I'd encourage you again, right? The point here is that uh, joy is a mark of faith in Jesus. If you remember, Paul is writing these commands from where? A Roman prison. And he's probably chained to a prison guard. And he's telling his people to rejoice. And what Paul speaks of here isn't some form of happiness that is contingent upon external circumstances. I One theologian says it this way. It is a rejoicing that can be had because it depends not on changing circumstances, but on the one who does not change. This is exactly what Paul uh, ends verse five with. What, what does he say at the very end of verse five? He says, Jesus is near. And if Jesus is by our side, what do we have to fear? Right? If Jesus is sitting beside you in this theater, what lasting anxiety can be brought? Right? What turmoil in your heart is everlasting? Right? If your king is right beside you. And it's so tough sometimes because the promises that we see in the scriptures, sometimes they don't seem important until we've went through incredibly hard seasons. Maybe a, an intense need or a, really radical season of suffering and I don't want that to be true for you or me or us as a church I want the nearness of Jesus's presence within you and the nearness of his second advent right advent is just a word for coming so he came once as a baby he'll come again to make it all things new I want the nearness of Jesus's presence within you if you follow Jesus and the nearness of his second coming to be the greatest gift we could ever have on our best days and on our worst days Verse six flows from the Lord's proximity to us and the proximity of of the second coming. If Jesus is with us and very soon he's gonna return and make all things new, look at verse six. Don't worry about anything. But in everything, through prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. You know, worry, or your translation might say anxiety. Uh, Worry here isn't a rebuke of all forms of concern. There is a healthy level of concern uh, we can have for others or other circumstances in our life. You know, in um, uh, Philippians chapter 2, verse 20, if you go back and look, um, Paul says that Timothy was concerned for the church of Philippi. So there is a redemptive concern. You know, I think of uh, our son, Ever, sitting up for the first time. He's got abdominals like a wet noodle, you know, it's kind of like, like we have a healthy concern for him uh, as he develops those muscles as we play, you know, uh, offensive lineman like a little, you know, helicopter parent behind him because he's our first child. Um, There's a healthy level of concern there, right, because we don't want him to bump his head. Paul isn't talking about a healthy level of concern. Paul is speaking about a worry that becomes debilitating, a worry that consumes all of our thoughts with worst-case scenarios and robs us of the joy and fulfillment that Jesus provides in his gospel. Paul says, don't worry, but instead, what does he say to do? Pray in everything. Take your requests to your Father. Be grateful in all circumstances and take these concerns to your sovereign Father and entrust your needs to his care. You know, I couldn't help uh, thinking of Peter in 1 Peter 5 where he says, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Right, Paul tells the Philippians uh, who may be anxious about many things, opponents on the outside, conflict within, he says take those things to Jesus. And if you do, there's a promise. There's a promise in verse seven. He says, in the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Right? God will give you peace. And Paul promises the same thing that Jesus promised us in John chapter 14, where he says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. I do not give it to you as the world gives. Uh, don't let your heart be troubled or fear, fearful. Man, I think of this a lot. Like, What if we could really get this? What if we could be women and men who weren't fearful? Like if, who were nine foot tall, bulletproof, right, and could go through life, and uh, weren't constantly afraid uh, of losing our job or uh, a bad health diagnosis. Like, what would that do for our Christmas? What would that do for our entire lives if we could really grab the peace that, that uh, Jesus provides here? Right? He, he says in John 14, he says, I don't give to you as the world gives. And again, the point here, the beauty of this promise of peace is not that it's a promise of ease. Right? Jesus is not promising us ease, but peace. Right? Followers of Jesus throughout church history have been known as a people of great suffering. And God's word never promises us ease, but it does promise us midst uh, a, a peace rather, in the midst of suffering or hardship or difficult circumstances. And this peace has one conduit through which it flows, and that is prayer to the triune God of the Bible. Right, we take our worries and our anxieties to the all-powerful, all-knowing God of Abraham, Jacob, and Isaac, knowing that the only way that we can approach the Father it's because of the life, death, and resurrection of his son, whose beauty and glory we would have never seen if it wasn't for the Holy Spirit breathing spiritual life into our souls through drawing us to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul says, take your worries and concerns to that king who wooed you and drew you and saved you from eternity separated from him. And if you do, he says, you will have peace. Now, I can't help but think uh, for me personally, uh, as a big old hypocrite standing in front of all y'all, you know, I was supposed to preach this message last week, and it's a little ironic for anybody who missed. Uh, I was in the hospital overnight for a, uh, I think, an aura migraine, I think, um, or ocular migraine. I don't, I don't know the word. It, I couldn't see well. Um, and, you know, I rushed in, and they're doing all these CT scans and stuff, and I'm, you know what I'm thinking. I'm like, rejoice in the Lord, rejoice always. <laughs> you know, it's like, I, I literally think God wanted me to preach this sermon to my own anxious heart before preaching it to y'all. And what if we had that? <laughs> what if you had that? Like, I don't, I don't care if I'm in an MRI tube. I have my king, and my king loves me, and I trust him. That no matter what comes, he's for my good. I take all my worries to him, knowing that if I do that, he'll give me the peace that only he can provide. You know, Rico Tice, who's a pastor from the UK, I listen to from time to time, he says, I've, I've yet to meet a perennial warrior who has a vibrant prayer life. There may be one but I haven't met one yet. And I can think of that for my own self, you know. It's like, if this, there's this promise that if I have a vibrant prayer life, then I'll have the peace that God provides. It's like, man, I, I hope and pray that I would be quick to take on that discipline. So simply speaking, you know, how do we apply this? How do we develop the joy uh, that Paul has? and Jesus uh, promises in John chapter 14 that's joy and peace regardless of circumstances. Well, the first thing I would say is to begin and de- to develop a, a discipline of praying and trust that God will allow that to produce joy in your life. Yeah, I'd start really small. You know, try to go uh, to God without any distraction for five minutes a day. Really start there. That's good. I right, don't uh, wake up tomorrow morning and be like, "I'm gonna spend two hours in solitude with Jesus." All right? Start small. Start five, hour, uh, five hours. <laughs> five, five minutes a day. Uh, just five minutes a day uh, with your King. And I, I encourage you again. Try to do that in an undistracted uh, area. Leave your cell phone. You know, we have enough time. That's another thing I would say. You don't believe. Um, any excuses that might be quick to come to my heart or your heart. I was reading this from John Piper. It was very convicting to me. He says, One of the greatest uses of social media in the last days will be to prove that our prayerlessness was not due to a lack of time. We got time. We we do, uh, even if it's small amounts. So I'd encourage you, start uh, small and begin a discipline to go to your Father in prayer. Number one, if you want to experience the gospel during Advent, uh, during the Christmas season, uh, or throughout all of life, uh, pursue the unity that Jesus provides as church to allow uh, the joy that Jesus provides to bring peace. And then lastly, fill your thoughts with the praiseworthy King. Look back at your Bibles as we conclude in verses 8 and 9. Paul says, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if, there's anything, uh, if there is uh, any moral excellence in it uh, and if there is anything praiseworthy, dwell on these things. Right. Lastly, Paul wants us to be intentional about uh, what consumes our minds. right? Paul calls them to think, and the, the Greek word here for think is uh, where we get the word logarithm, uh, which just uh, infers that he wants you to really think deeply. And in order to relate uh, to the Philippians' cultural background, he uses six terms that were popular among uh, non-Christian secular moral philosophers uh, during their time. Those things are uh, true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, and commendable. And Paul wants to, them to take these concepts that the average a citizen in the Philippi uh, would have valued, and he wants to exceed them because they have their primary citizenship, uh, which is in heaven. So, what do these terms mean? The first thing, true. Right? Paul wants the Philippians to be guarded by that which is true, and to consume their minds and thoughts life, uh, thought life with what is true. You know, Psalms uh, 1, 60 says, "The sum of your word is truth." And Jesus says in John chapter 17, Sanc- to "Sanctify them by truth. Your word is truth." So, where do we find what is true? Well, in God's word you know in addition i'd say uh, the primary way an individual according to Romans 1:18 provokes the wrath of god is to suppress the truth according to Romans 1:18 so first he says whatever is true secondly he says whatever is honorable i tag this with commendable as well uh, paul wants them to think of individuals who who to think of individuals who live lives that are worthy of honor worthy of respect worthy uh, of virtue uh, individuals who are dignified in how they hold themselves and the character that they pursue you know, I can remember being—I uh, don't know how old I was, probably like 14, 15, or 16—and watching um, *Men of Honor* by Cuba Gooding Jr. Anybody? Well, he didn't write it; he was in it. But uh, anybody seen this before? It's such a—thank you, thank you, Lou Jones. Uh, it's, I, and I was like, dude, I am called. I want to be like that guy: perseverance, integrity, discipline. Uh, uh, if you don't know the basis of the story, he was the first African-American master diver in the Navy, and he got, overcomes all these hurdles. Like, I want to be a man of honor. After watching that uh, movie, and that's what Paul's saying here. It's like whatever's true and honorable, be consumed by these things. Uh, fourthly, he says whatever is just. Right? Paul wants them to be guided by they, that which is just, and of course, that which is uh, just according to God. Right? God, um, in His Word and His character, He tells us what is right. Uh, he tells us what is wrong, and He wants this to impact their daily dealings where they work, play, and live. Uh, fifthly, he says uh, whatever is pure. Right? Paul doesn't want to create a bunch of prudes. Right? Um, but he does desire for us to not dwell on that which is impure or tainted by the world. And lastly, um, whatever is lovely. Right? Paul wants the Philippians to enjoy things in life. Right? Things that are beautiful, a great painting, a great song, a sunset at the beach, great food. And Paul concludes, he says, If there's any moral excellence, and if there's anything praiseworthy, dwell on these things. Right, Paul wants their minds to be occupied with glorious, glorious things, not that which, which is worthless. Right, Paul wants them to be very careful at what their eyes and their minds consume. You know, Proverbs uh, 4.23 has been misused as a dating verse uh, in history, uh, at least in mine, but uh, this is way more about, than about dating, right? He says, above all else, guard your heart, for uh, everything you do flows from it. For us in 2023, the same is true. What we allow to be imp- inputted through our minds and eyes will affect our output. What you view, what we view, is a spiritual discipline. What we view is a spiritual discipline, and God's word is clear, right? He doesn't want His people to be uh, mixed with immorality. You know, Psalm uh, ninety-seven ten says, "Let those who love the Lord hate evil." Or Paul in Ephesians five uh, twelve says, "It is shameful to even speak of things that they do in secret." You know, one pastor I listened to uh, this week; his name is Kent Hughes. He read this passage as, as, uh, with all the antonyms and I thought it was so helpful. He says, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is false, whatever is dishonorable, whatever is unjust, whatever is impure, whatever is repulsive, whatever is blameworthy, if there's any moral inferiority and if, anything, if there's anything dishonorable, do not dwell on these things. So what does it look like to apply this passage? Well, like Paul, I think, I don't want to create a church full of prudes either. But I do wonder... How much we 've allowed what simply used to be referred to as Christian obedience to now be referred to as legalism or being prudish or being religious, and who moved that scale? Right? did god 's word make us more willing to watch movies with explicit scenes in them, or did our culture begin to teach us that that 's okay? you know certainly a contemporary a- application here is to be very careful with what type of media we consume. you know I did a very a very little bit of research this week and uh, at um, the increasing explicit content in just television shows. In uh, 1960, uh, the one in 30 shows had some form of explicit content. In 1970, one in eight. In uh, 1980, uh, one in six. And in 2005, the latest data I could find, seven out of ten shows had some form of explicit content. Right, Psalm 119.37 says, turn my eyes away from looking at worthless things. Psalm uh, three says, I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. So it is not legalism to refuse to gaze upon anything that Jesus would refuse to gaze on himself. I'll repeat that. It is not legalistic at all. It's not prudish at all to refuse to gaze upon anything that Jesus would refuse to gaze upon as well. And lastly, Paul calls the Philippians to application uh, just like we do, right, in verse nine, where he has some imperatives. He says, do what you've learned and received and heard from me and seen in me. And the God of peace, there's a promise again, will be with you. Throughout this uh, uh, letter, Paul is not being as concerned with warning the Philippians about right doctrine. There's other letters for that. But here, uh, he wants the Philippians to experience the gospel in real life. And I want you to experience the gospel in Advent. I really mean that. Like, I I want you to look back in 2023 and be like, dude, because of God's word and his spirit's power and the glory and fame of Jesus, my Christmas in 2023 was marked by something distinct than in my other Christmases. I want you to experience the gospel that provides deep intimacy that only the God of the universe can provide and produce things that we all long for, especially around Christmas joy, unity, peace, and fulfillment. And this verse tells us uh, that these are gifts that we must receive. All right, what has Paul taught us throughout the book of Philippians? He says, To live is Christ, to die is gain. Jesus is fully God and fully man. Uh, Timothy and Paphroditus are great examples. He says, Don't give in to opposition. He says, don't be be influenced by those who don't follow Jesus. Rejoice and be thankful regardless of circumstances and be very, very careful in what you consume. And in verse nine, he says, put all this into practice, my friends, not in order to gain God's favor, but because he's given it to you freely in Jesus. And in doing so, if you do these things, you'll experience the gospel in your daily life. And for us in this season, I'd say, don't you want your Christmas to be marked by these things? Unity, low anxiety, peace, dwelling on the good. I know I do. And Paul says that God will provide it if we accept these, these gifts uh, gifts through putting into practice what he's called to, called us to. Number one, if we want our Christmas to be marked by uh, the, the peace that God provides, we'll pursue the unity that Jesus provides this church. Two, allow the joy that Jesus provides to bring peace. And three, we'll fill our thoughts, uh, fill our minds rather, with thoughts of the praiseworthy King. Let's pray together. Father, we love you so much and we are so very grateful for your word, God, it is such a gift uh, to me, to your people. Thank you for it. It is such a privilege to preach as well. I uh, thanks uh, just even for the time to spend time in this in your in this passage specifically, and then share it with my friends. Gotta pray uh, not because uh, this is a great sermon, but because you're a great Savior that it would truly impact people's lives for your good. That um, December of 2023 would be a season where anxiety took a turn in the hearts and minds of people in this room, uh, where relational conflict was uh, more dealt with, uh, where we took initiative to uh, have hard conversations with friends. Uh, Father, I can't do that, but your word can. Your word can call uh, call us to do that. So I pray you would through your spirit's power. And uh, Father, I pray as we celebrate baptisms uh, in a couple moments as well that, people would just be encouraged that by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, God, you've done everything necessary to reconcile us to yourself, and that would lead us to want to publicly proclaim our faith and trust in you. So thank you for the gift of your word. Thank you for the gift of baptism. Thank you for the gift of your people. We love you. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. (laughs)